0: We continue tonight on our look, our examination of Jesus and the center of our Christian faith and of our lives of discipleship. The passage before us in Luke 5 tonight invites us to consider the nature of our response to God, the nature of our response to Jesus. And so that's what we'll be looking at tonight. There are many, many different ways to respond to Jesus, both ancient and and modern Um, all of these ways have been around for a long time we can respond to him by ignoring him we can respond by indifference, by amusement by mockery by rejection we can respond with interest, with confusion maybe with fear, maybe with curiosity we can respond to Jesus with faith as the Bible encourages us to, but there are a number of different ways, uh, myriads of ways that we can respond to Jesus. I want to say before I look a little bit more closely at this nature of response, I need to say something that sort of begins. The fact that we would respond to Jesus implies something, doesn't it? it? It implies that he has taken an initiative. He's taken a step forward. And we need to note from the beginning that God is a God of initiative. God is the God who speaks first. God is the God who created the world. And then God is the God who who reveals himself to his creation and makes himself known. So God is constantly in that first place, that place, that that primary cause, if you will, that is, is reaching out into the lives of his people. God comes near. And in this story in Luke 5, it's Jesus who um, enters into the world. We read about in the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel. It's Jesus who comes down to the the, uh, shore of the lake. It's Jesus who asks Simon if he can get into his boat and set out a little bit so that he can teach the people. It's Jesus who gives Simon this command, and it's Jesus who gives Simon this commission. So there is Jesus in this place of initiative-taking. Jesus reaching out, calling out, engaging. The point I want to make simply at the beginning is that God is a God who engages, in, engages his people. He takes an initiative with, with his people. And I'm confident, actually, that in all of our lives, God is taking initiative in one way or another. Whatever phase of, of this Christian life of discipleship that you may be on, whether you're just looking at who Jesus is for the first time or you've been walking with him for some time, that God is, is making an initiative you. The question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to this initiative-taking God? This God who's reaching out to his people again and again. How do we respond to his being? To who he is? How do we respond to his commands? How do we respond to his call? And then the, the next question is, is our response consistent with his person, his commands, and his call? Does it it match up to the nature of who this God is that's taking initiative? Now, this is helpful for us as a community at Church of the Cross. We've been looking this fall and are continuing to have a conversation together about discipleship, about what it means to actually follow Jesus, to grow deeper in Christ, recognizing that our longing to be a missional family that bears witness to this God that we have worshipped already tonight depends upon our going deep, our having roots deep down in the grace of God, the life of God, the purposes of God being worked out in us. We've talked about a, a strenuous reorientation that's required of all of God's children to be oriented now to Jesus and his ways instead of the world and its ways. So this question of how do we respond and this, this passage that gives us a glimpse into a proper response to God is doubly important and timely for us as a community, as we look at this question of discipleship. The first thing that we see in this story, after Jesus uses just a good bit of resourcefulness to be able to speak to the people uh, by going out in the boat, there's a lot of crowds, he jumps out in the the boat, and he's out a little bit from the shore. And after he finishes teaching, we read in verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets For a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. So here's the deal God takes initiative, God comes near, but God doesn't come into the lives of his his people. And Jesus didn't enter into Galilee just to kind of saddle up next to us and make us feel comfortable. God comes in in authority and with authority. And God always comes with commands, with demands that he makes. Of people, So God comes to his people and he commands things of his people. And here's Jesus with this ridiculous command to an expert fisherman. Um, Many of you know that we've done some work on renovations in a house in Jamaica Plain that God has just graciously provided for our family. And I, I want to assure you there have been several times along the way where I've said to the plumber, look, I think you need to do things this way. And uh, plumbers don't take advice very well from laymen like me, and so there'd be kind of a a tense moment, and and then generally resistance, and I would be defeated. (laughs) And uh, there wouldn't be any obedience there. It's the same kind of thing here with Jesus. Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the prophet, the mighty man of God. Sure, Jesus, you can tell me what to do when it comes to the things of the holy things, but don't invade my life where where I know what's best. So Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now the time to fish, the time to catch fish is at night. And it's quite likely that the nets that Jesus tells Simon and his friends to put down are made out of linen and they're able to be seen by fish during the day. That's the reason they use these nets at night. So here's Peter. We've done it all night. We've done it when we should have. We didn't catch anything, Jesus Also, by the way, all these crowds are standing on the shore watching. You're going to make a fool of yourself. He's incredulous, really, at this command that Jesus makes. But then look at his response. Verse 5, the second part. But at your word, I will let down the nets. We all have these places in our lives, don't we, where we think we know best. Maybe it's our sexual life. Maybe it's our marriage. Maybe it's our vocation. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's the fact that we think it's best not to forgive this person, our parents, perhaps, somebody who's harmed us deeply. We all have these places where, where we like to remain in control. And yet Peter gives us this first picture of a proper response to God's initiative, which is comprehensive obedience. But at your word. So I I don't really want to give any more effort in this relationship, God. I, I think I'm done here. It's just too painful. Forgive as I have forgiven you. Love one another as I have loved you. I really want to pursue this career. This means everything to me. This is my life. This this, This is how I'm going to make it. This is how others are going to think I'm really somebody or something in the world. And Jesus is saying, take up your cross. And follow me. Lay, lay it down. And become a servant. Become a slave. And follow me. See, the temptation that we all have as disciples of Jesus none of us would deny the importance of obedience, would we? That'd be foolish. It's of course, we're called to obey Jesus. He's our master. He's our Lord. But the temptation that we have is selective obedience. The temptation is always to hold on to a part. Of our lives and and to say no I'm master here I'm the expert fisherman Jesus don't tell me how to fish I can take care of this one on my own God always pushes us in this way and it begins with Abraham think back for just a moment to Genesis 22 what does God ask of Abraham Abraham I want you to go up to this mountain and I want you to sacrifice your only son the son of the promise to me God's always testing in this area where we think we know best and asking us for a naked trust and dependence upon him and his word alone. So the slogan of a disciple is but at your word, I will. At your word, I will pursue chastity, and purity as a single person in this world. At your word, I will. I will pursue to lay down my life for my wife and love her as you have loved the church. At your word, I will seek reconciliation with this person in my life. And look at the result of this kind of comprehensive and not selective obedience. It's this miraculous catch of fish. I only note this in passing in some ways, and this is the big event of the story, but they, lay down, they let down the nets And they take in so many fish that their two boats begin to sink. Great encouragement there for you when you're stuck in that place of deciding whether or not you're going to take Jesus at his word and follow him. Or you're going to go your own way to take Jesus at his word. I will. And watch that maybe not in the way you anticipated, God bring blessing. God bring something of life into your life. So the the fish fill up the boat, and we get this next picture of the response of a disciple. See, when God takes initiative, when God comes near, God comes in power. He comes in power. The miraculous catch of fish here, which we know is miraculous by virtue of the fact that Peter says, we fished all night and there was nothing, God comes in power. Jesus displays an otherworldly kind of power. We're not necessarily suggesting that Peter at this point identified Jesus as God himself. But he knows that in Jesus' presence, he's come to do business with the Holy One. He's come into contact with someone who's far different from himself. And just know that the power that's displayed, God's power is always working out life And this kind of miraculous catch of fish is a picture of resurrection in some way. The deadness, the barrenness, the lifelessness of the sea all night long. Jesus speaks and there's an abundance of life. This is the way that God's power is made known in the world. It's a power of resurrection. It's a power to bring life from death. To bring fruit from something that's barren. So God comes... In power, And we see Peter's statement. Uh, I love this statement. This is the, the next response or slogan of the disciple of Jesus. When Simon Peter saw it, verse 8, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. There's an enormous difference between who you are and who I am. There's a gigantic difference between who you are, Lord, and who I am. And instead of like the people at the end of chapter 4 who beg Jesus not to leave the region so he can continue to be their, their, their genie Jesus that would do their bidding and, and meet their needs, Peter recognizes something deeply. That he has no business with this man. Why? For I'm a sinful man. I'm tainted. I've gone my own way. I know what I did last weekend. I know the thoughts that I entertain. I know the sites that I click on on the internet. And when I come into contact with you, Lord, I've got no business to be here. Depart from me, he says. Leave me. I'm a sinful man. You, you are God. You are of God. I, I am a sinner. The temptation, the temptation for us in the second response is self-respectability it's hard it's hard to say for our pride it's hard to say i'm a sinner it's hard to say i've got nothing to bring to the table it's hard to say that i don't have any right to be in your presence i've got no right to be here jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself, who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a difference here, and the difference is this, and this is the thing that Peter's insight is so brilliant in his just... You know, his his peterness, his response right here, just, just responding on the moment, on the spot. The thing that's brilliant is that the Pharisee in Luke 18 has a claim upon God. The Pharisee says, I've got, I, you've got something to do with me, God, because I've earned it and I'm good and you need to be my God and I'm, I belong to you. And what Peter sees in this moment in the boat with the fish all around and the mess and the smell and the water and he falls at his knees and says, I have no claim upon you. None. I don't belong here. Get away from me. I don't belong. And every single disciple of Jesus has to say this very thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The temptation is that we want to maintain something of significance and reputation and value in our own hearts that we're not willing to let go of. We're not willing to lay it all down. We're not willing to say that I've got no claim. I just want want to say as an aside, this is one reason for Moments in our service like the confession of sin. It's not because we live in a state of penitence, but it's because we are so quick to forget. We are so quick to move from that place of having no claim upon God to having a claim upon Him, to demanding things of Him. And it's one of the reasons the beautiful thing of the seasons of Advent and of Lent in the church's calendar that lead us again to this place of reminding ourselves that we've got no claim. So comprehensive obedience first, and the second response is of humility. But I love what comes next in the story. They've taken in the fish. Jesus has fallen down on his knees. They're all astonished. And then Jesus does something. Again, here is our God taking an initiative with his people. So, we don't ever stay there. We don't ever stay in this place of depart from me. We don't stay in that place of of, I've got nothing to do with you. It's important that we pass through that. But then, what does Jesus say? Verse 10 Do not be afraid. There are echoes in Luke 5 of Isaiah 6, which is why we read Isaiah 6 tonight, the call of Isaiah. He gets this glimpse and this vision of the glory of God in the heavenlies. And then he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But then what happens? He's touched. So, and this happens again and again. It happens in Revelation 1 with John falling at his feet as though dead, falling down on his knees, prostrated as though dead. And then Jesus reaching out. It happens at the transfiguration. Jesus reaching out. Jesus here in the boat, in the mess, saying, do not be afraid. And instead of depart from me, what does Jesus do next? What does God do when he comes near, when God takes initiative? He issues a call. He issues a commission. He gives a vocation. So instead of saying, yeah, you're right, Peter, stay away from me. God, the the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the God that we serve, the God that we proclaim and worship, is he's always drawing near and then bringing in and saying, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You're right, you have no claim on me. You're right, you have no right to be in my presence. But I will cleanse you. I'll make you new and I will bring you in. And not only that, but I will enlist you and send you out. It's astonishing that the God that we worship is holy, holy, holy would take a man like Simon Peter who not only learns these lessons now but then goes to forget them and denies Jesus three times and use him in his kingdom in a mighty and powerful way. So he embraces, he calls, and he commissions his people to participate in his redemptive purpose. And here's the third response, the third mark that I want you to see of a disciple is verse 11, the last verse. And when they had brought their boats to land, They left everything and followed him. They didn't even stay to fillet those fish. They left everything and followed him. Abandonment and attachment. Abandonment and attachment. Jesus says from now on, there will be a decisive break with the past. Your life cannot be the same when God draws near and grabs a hold of you and changes you and commissions you and calls you. There will be a change. There will be a decisive moment and a break from your past. From now on, Jesus says. And here's what happens. It's the, re- the relativization. That's a clumsy word. But the relativization of everything else in our lives in light of the one of absolute value of our supreme treasure. And this gets played out for us again and again in the biblical witness. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. Such that when the merchant finds it, he sells all that he has to go and buy this one pearl. Philippians 3, Paul All these things that were gained to me, all of of my pedigree, all of my training and education, I count them as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So everything in our lives, in light of Jesus, loses its absolute value and becomes relative to the one who is absolute. So there is a sense in which we abandon everything. We lay everything down. Now, please hear me say, I'm not not saying that you aren't called to be an artist or a a businessman or um, a teacher or a lawyer or whatever. I'm not saying that God hasn't called us and given us a vocation to use and to fulfill for his purposes and his glory. In fact, he has. And he doesn't call everybody, even in the Gospel of Luke, to leave everything, their vocation like Peter and, and, and James and John did in this passage, and, and go follow him as an itinerant uh, preacher. But here's the point is that to become a disciple of Jesus requires that you literally lay everything down at his feet and say, "Tell me Jesus what to take up." Nothing stays. Nothing stays. We often talk in in thinking about marriage that when you come together in a new covenant of marriage, everything comes onto the table for negotiation because now the two of you have formed one new life, one flesh, and you're called now to walk a new life together of pilgrimage after Jesus, and everything's up for discussion. It's the same thing when we meet Jesus. Everything gets taken out of my pocket, out of my grasp, put back on the table, and I say, Lord, you show the way. You tell me what to take up again and how to follow you. They left everything and followed him. There's this one new place, fundamental belonging and identity, and it's around Jesus and his people and his redemptive purposes that he's calling us towards. So here's the temptation with this third thing. It's syncretism. It's not laying everything down. It's not leaving everything and following him. Saying I'm, I'm actually going to take you Jesus and I'm going to put you up here next to my fishing career and we're going to do this thing together and I'm going to be a fisherman and I'm also going to be your disciple or whatever you fill in the blank as. And we're so, it's so easy to take God plus something else, isn't it? Jesus plus. It's in the plus that we lose our vitality and it's the plus that Jesus will not stand for. For his children. It's just Jesus. But the temptation is always to syncretism. To adding to and never taking away. And to add Jesus means that we take away everything else. And then we take back up what he tells us to take up. God has come near. Jesus takes the initiative in this story at every turn. The God that we serve is a God of grace and of of, of mercy, a God who's, who's longing to know his children. He's come near. How have you responded? How have you responded? With comprehensive obedience or selective obedience? With humility or with self respectability? With abandonment and attachment to Jesus? Or with syncretism? With adding Jesus to your list of priorities and putting him in the place that you think it's right to put him for the day at hand? The utter and amazing thing is that even though we have nothing to do with this God, he said Do not be afraid. The way for growing in these responses to Jesus that Peter illustrates for us here is by seeing once again the glory and the wonder of this God who has come near, of his love, of his forgiveness, of his welcome, of his resurrection power at work in the world. To see these things again clearly Is to see that He is the pearl of great price. And then to lay everything down, to fall on our knees, and to follow Him with comprehensive obedience, with humility, and abandoning everything and clinging to Him. May He give us the grace, the power, the strength. We can't do this apart from His grace. Come to the table, receive. His grace, His power, His strength to walk in this way as a people.